This episode of the Doctors Running Podcast is sponsored by our friends at Running Warehouse. Make sure you head over to their YouTube page to catch the second episode of their new series, Test Run, where they put the team through a series of challenges to help showcase what kind of activities each shoe is best suited for. Their latest episode is all about versatility. Connor and the team brought out some fan-favorite trainers of the past year, including the Saucony Endorphin Speed, Asics Nova Blast 3, Hoka Clifton 9, and New Balance Rebel V3 to see where each shoe excelled. Check out the results of their test by heading over to Running Warehouse's channel on YouTube today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Doctors Running Podcast, where we, a group of doctors of physical therapy, discuss the art and science of running and the stuff that we put on our feet. Today at the round table, we have myself, Nathan, I'll be hosting, and we have Dr. David Salas, who is joining me. We have a really fun episode today, but... If this episode goes from having both of us here to becoming a David solo episode, the reason why is because I got up at 4 a.m., well, 3.40 or whatever, to catch the U.S. Today is the day where they played in the round of 16, the U.S. women's soccer. Um, So I am totally spent. I'm just so tired from getting up that early. Uh, so if this becomes a David solo episode, you know, I just fell asleep at the wheel here, but, uh, Outside of that, we have a really actually a fun episode today. We are dipping into the mailbag and we wanted to hear what your questions were surrounding hamstrings and hamstring injuries. So that is going to be the topic of today. And that kind of leads us into our subjective. We really got a lot of questions. We won't be able to probably hit all the questions we got. So our next subjective is what is the next condition or tissue or whatever that you want to hear us talk about. So we've talked about some in the past, um, like plantar fascia and Achilles. We can always hit those again, but what do you want to hear from us? That's our subjective for the day. All right. Are we ready to just jump right in, David, or do you have any updates? No, I think we can jump right in. Great. Let's do it. Actually, let's not. I was going to also say this is a cra- this is actually a pretty crazy summer for our team family wise. So oh, as you all know, like yeah. David got married a couple I weeks know. ago now and Matt as we as we record tonight, like at any moment his wife could go into labor to have their first baby. So hang with us as we go through a lot of crazy transitions uh, as a team. We are working hard to make sure that we help or continue to crank out material for you all that is useful and beneficial and hopefully at least a little entertaining as well. But now with that said, let's jump into the episode. So again, we dipped in the mailbag. We got all your questions about hamstrings, hamstring injuries, hamstring injury prevention, rehabilitation. And let's just start with this one because I think it will kind of give us an opportunity to just talk about what the hamstrings are. So this is uh, from Celia... Sealy FT run. Do you got a better guess on that? I'm so sorry. Uh, But it says, no matter what I do or who I see to try and fix it, it's always nagging. Why? So I feel like we obviously can't answer this question, but David, what are some uh, things about the hamstring that, that make it what it is, make it a common running injury? Let's use this as a platform to talk about what's going on with the hamstring. Yeah, so the hamstring is so dynamic of a muscle. I mean, we're talking about a multi-joint muscle. It basically it runs from the ischial tuberosity, meaning right at the sit bone there, um, right on the bottom of that pelvis. It goes straight down your leg, and it's actually a group of muscles. We refer to it as one all the time, but it's actually three different muscles. 
And um, when you look at the, well, let's just go to anatomy first, actually. So biceps femoris goes down from that tuberosity down the lateral side, meaning the outside of your leg attaches to the head of the fibula. And then the semimembranosus and semitendinosus go from that ischial tuberosity down medially and then attach to the inside of that knee or just distal to that. One of them goes to a group called the pes anserine. The other one kind of blends in as well. What its job is to do in isolation is to bend the knee, essentially. It's knee flexion, but it does so much more than that dynamically. And because it has that high attachment, basically up in your butt there, when anytime you extend your leg out in front of you, whether it's walking, running, it's one of the main mechanisms that helps control your leg speed going forward so that you can prep your next step so that you can snap down onto the ground and push off. That's a very functional translation of it. However, it also does help with that initial lift and like the kicking up of the leg as well. So this is something that's on all of the time. And there's a couple of different mechanisms as well to help with that as well. Your adductors on the inside of your groin can help out the hamstrings a little bit. And it's also, it's working together with everything. I mean, everything from your core and back muscles to your hip flexors on the front side, everything kind of has to work alongside with each other in order to get the job done. And so it one of the reasons why hamstring injuries or niggles like like things going up and down over the course of time it's not surprising because of how much it does and that's not just running that's living life as well and so it's it's very very tough to answer that question because mm-hmm. it can do so many things and it's on all of the time i mean i can't tell you how many times i've had someone where maybe they had a proximal hamstring injury and their complaints shift away from, well, I can't run to like, I'm having a hard time going upstairs. Like every time I sit down or I drive, I extend my leg out, like certain like daily things start to get lost. And so when we look at hamstrings, I think the biggest thing initially is to look at irritability. How sensitive is this thing right now? And what can we do with it outside of a pain sphere? And see if we could just make that bubble just a little tighter, a little tighter, a little tighter, make it more functional, make it stronger, make it all the above, you know, coordination, proprioception, all that stuff, and and just create a better platform, better lever in the most literal terms. It's a very long stringy tendon, hence the name string, um, so that it can work for you. And not to say that it's working against you, sometimes it's just working hard. Yeah, totally. Um, and just to, I'll kind of reiterate or hit on a couple other things just so that as we say terms, they hopefully will come back and kind of make a little bit more sense. So as you said, as David had said, so this is a muscle that spans two joints. So it, it crosses the hip joint and it crosses the knee joint. So if you were to contract your, your hamstring muscles, the whole group, you would extend your hip and you would flex your knee. If you wanted to quote unquote stretch your hamstrings or put it on tension, you would need to flex your hip or like bring your knee towards your chest and then straighten your knee out. Those those combinations of motions are what put the hamstring on slack or stretch. And then as David said, it's a very involved muscle with running. The highest uh the highest activation of the hamstrings is, as David said, in that what we call terminal swing phase. So your leg that's in the air, as it's swinging forward, the highest 
uh, activation of those hamstrings is at that end part of the swing phase because if you didn't, your leg would just keep swinging until you did like a punter's kick, (laughs) quite literally, because those muscles are what slow it down. Um, And then they spike even a little bit more once you land So because they help with that absorption of the shock. So you're slowing the limb. It helps absorb the shock. That's its highest uh, activation point. And then it recycles over and over and over and over again. The other thing that you'll will note about the hamstrings is we'll go into this later more, but speed does change how involved the hamstring is with the stride. So faster, more hamstring, slower, less hamstring. If you've ever raced a one mile and you haven't raced a mile in a while, or you raced a 5k and you haven't raced a 5k in a while, you probably like, darn, my hamstrings are sore today, the next day or the day after, because hamstring utilizations af- utilization af- uh, at those higher speeds is higher. So I think the other piece that I wanted to bring up is nothing exists in isolation. The hamstrings within them and underneath them flow the sciatic nerve um, and a lot of other anatomical structures. So when you have pain in that region, there can be a lot of different causes for these things, which is why if you don't get the right thing treated, it can lead to prolonged issues. Um, and as is most things, our understanding of what causes the pain and why pain exists or what is the actual like cellular changes, that's all under investigation still. Nothing is completely set in stone. We're learning a lot about our perception of pain and where that comes from and what's the actual, you know, source in the, just because something anatomically looks weird at the cellular level doesn't mean that that's causing the pain. So I would just to premise this whole thing, this is not going to be obviously a, a lecture, uh, like a, a doctoral level lecture on this stuff. We're trying to give tangible things, but it's also not everything's figured out. So we will obviously won't have all the answers. Nobody can really have all the answers. Um, but we do want to try to address some of these questions and maybe hopefully help people with some, some of their issues and pitfalls. But this is all just educational, not specific medical advice. The last thing I will add is we always talk about make sure that there is an involvement from the back when it comes to lower extremity injuries. The hamstring is a, a, a muscle that's innervated by levels L5, S1, S2. And so that's a pretty common area for what we call lumbar radiculopathy. So a lot of times if people are having low back pain associated uh, with leg pain, you might find that there's weakness associated and all these other things. So the back is also an important thing to be screening when you have pain in the back of the leg, uh, Whether, especially if you're a clinician, you should be checking that out with, with your runners. All right. Um, I think too, DJ, maybe giving a quick list of kind of just general types of locations of pain or types of injuries that we see in, in hamstrings. Um, do you want to lay a couple out for everybody? Yeah, so there's a couple different things that can happen at the hamstring. And we talked about it a little bit with the nuances anatomically. There's just a lot going on. And this is a really long muscle. I mean, it's going from like you're bumped all the way down to the like distal part of your knee, top of the shin there on the backside. And so usually when we refer to hamstring injuries, they're they're almost always either proximal or distal. Uh, proximal meaning closer up to like the center piece of your spine there. So that would be essentially high up in the butt there. Uh, usually you feel it when your leg reaches out in front of you or tries to decelerate your leg like we were talking about earlier. 
But you can have it distally as well. And distally meaning further away from you. That can be on the inside of the knee. That can be on the outside of the knee. Probably more outside is more common than the inside just because of stability and other things going on. You have internal rotation of your femur. When you land, it's part of the shock absorbing mechanism. Sometimes it just gets a little bit irritated rubbing on the outside of the knee. Um, or someone's really quad dominant and they have other things going on for the IT band and whatnot. But uh, usually that'd be proximal, distal. Sometimes you can get muscle belly, you know, genuine pain as well, whether it's weightlifting, like isolated exercises, a bunch of knee flexion exercises, or even just straight uh, like bridges with rollouts or things like that where you're trying to isolate and really work those hamstrings and then you get sore. Um, sometimes you'll get proximal that becomes belly where it kind of starts up high and then as it gets a little bit more irritated, they'll feel it down the leg. And then, like you mentioned earlier, this could not be a hamstring thing at all. This could be something spinal where maybe there's a disc bulge or some stenotic changes happening or some kind of neurological involvement that's decreasing strength or increasing, you know, just neurologic tension where like everything around it's just kind of gripping around that hamstring a little bit more. So it feels tighter because it's holding on to it more, you know, where it's not maybe it's not truly quote unquote tight, but it's guarded. So there, there's a lot of different things that can go into hamstrings. And I mean, we said it before, but it's so dynamic of a muscle and it's so long of a muscle. There's just so many things that can go into it. Yeah. I, I like to categorize them and basically, is it an issue with the tendon? Is it an issue with the muscle belly? Or is it an issue with the musculotendinous junction where the muscle kind of transitioned into being a tendon and then the tendon attaches to the bone? And the tendon issues can either, as you said, be proximal up by your sit bone or distal down by your knee. And then the everything in between is kind of from the muscle belly. The muscle belly stuff is typically like an acute injury from like sprinting. sprinting, yeah. Yeah, so like that, that's... We often on this podcast end up talking a little bit more about um, distance running, uh, pretty much anything 800 and up. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, that is a reality where the muscle belly stuff is probably going to sit more in that sprinting, which could happen in a kick for an 800 too. So, I mean, I've kind um, of pulled up a little bit kicking before. Yeah, you're 1500, fast. 5K, I've, it's happened. <laughs> That's good. It's good. You're I mean, too that's fast. Not a good thing. <laughs> it's great. Th- it's a great thing. You're so fast. Shouldn't be, shouldn't be pulling up in the last fifty of the race, but hamstring hamstring tears are great because it means you're running fast enough, right? <laughs> Kidding. Sure. All right, so let's move. Let's move on to our next question. So we had multiple questions on one of these topics that you just kind of laid out there, David, and that's proximal hamstring tendinopathy. So here's kind of the questions. Heebie-jeebies asks, what can be done for rehab and management of proximal hamstring tendinitis? And then Fox in Socks in Box with No asks, what do you recommend for insertional hamstring tendinopathy? And we're assuming that insertional means uh, inserting into the bone proximally up by the sit bone. So I've been doing a little bit of work on this. I have a couple athletes who've been dealing with proximal hamstring tendinopathy. So um, there's a really great article by a guy named Tom Goom. He's actually running physio if you want to like look him up, but he's an awesome physiotherapist, has a lot of continued education for runners. If you are a PT and you want to do a course, he has uh, what's called the running repairs course. It's an online CEU that you can do. I think it's really good stuff. Um, and 
he's got a really great clinical commentary that came out a bit ago about runners with proximal hamstring tendinopathy. And I think the big thing about proximal hamstring tendinopathy, just remember it's at that point where it's inserting into your sit bone, you're often going to get kind of like what feels like deep buttock pain. Sometimes it feels like it radiates up into the buttock a little bit more. Sometimes it radiates down the leg a little bit. And oftentimes the people feel pain at that point where there's the highest hamstring activation, which is right either as or right after that foot is hitting the ground. Remember, your hamstring is contracting to slow your limb down, and then it helps a little bit with that shock absorption. And that's the point where people who have proximal ten- uh, hamstring tendinopathy tend to feel their symptoms. Um, and it's actually a real bugger to treat. And and part of that is because the issue is not only uh, the activation of the hamstring, but it's also the compression of that tendon. So if you can picture yourself bringing your knee to your chest and you have you know a, the tendon sticking into a bone, that tendon gets stretched but also compressed and like bent over that sit bone. And so one of the issues with this is that you not only need to moderate the amount of of loading that goes to the tendon from a force production perspective, you have to limit the amount of compression. And the way that you can do that from a rehab perspective is limiting the amount of hip flexion or bringing your knee towards your chest when you're doing different activities. So if you're, for example, for some people, skipping a step might be painful, but a single step as you're going upstairs might not. And that's because you're going into less less hip flexion. If you're running faster, as you're bringing your leg forward and if your knee is coming higher, that's more hip flexion. You might get more compression of the tendon during that deceleration phase. So there's a lot of things that can lead to increased irritation that are very minute changes. So running at eight versus a seven versus a six minute per mile might be the thing that flares it back up as you're trying to get in on your rehab. Um, there's kind of, you know, the, the, the name of the game is load management. Uh, you have to do the right type of loading uh, but you can't do no loading at all. If you just rest, this is one of those things that isn't going to get better on a cellular level. It has to do with re- ultimately there's changes in like what's called ground substance, but it comes to changes in what's called collagen. And it means that you have to give it the right load to train it to go back to the proper orientation, which we know in the Achilles tendon can take about nine months. So we don't know exactly what that looks like in the hamstring. It's a little bit more squirrely in terms of our ability to uh, see it when we're doing research when it comes to like diagnostic ultrasound. But a lot of those principles probably still apply where this is a long-term process. You can't hope for changes in two weeks. You can't hope for changes in six weeks. You can't hope for changes in eight weeks. You got to think like three, six, nine months of a rehab process, which on the front end, if you have that in your head, that can be really helpful. That also means you just have to be super patient when it comes to running. Cause like I said, if you try to go too fast, too soon, it might be the one thing that just flares it back up and just sets you back a little bit. That does not mean that it's then you don't have to start completely over, but it's just one of those road bumps where you just have to be okay being patient and then uh, being smart with the types of exercises that you're doing. So when it, I, I can't go into like all the details, but I will give a couple more kind of tidbits on like progressing yourself through. If you're having pain just like sitting on a chair, if you're having pain just with walking or just with stairs, I would say you're probably in a more high irritability state which means that your loading exercises should be ones that aren't putting compression through the tendon. And that means, as I just said, like keeping your hip fully extended or straight. You don't want your hip bent. So 
um, the only way to do exercises without kind of moving into flexion are isometrics. So isometric bridges, um, if you have like a, ro- I think it's called a Roman chair, uh, that's what, what I call them, where you can kind of like put your heels in and kind of bend forward. You can just oh, hold your yeah, body yeah, yeah. at like a, you know, at an incline and just do single leg holds. Um, we actually have we actually have some exercises posted on our Instagram about proximal hamstring tendinopathy going through, we're through three of four phases of rehab. But you got to start really easy with these long isometric holds that helps with pain modulation, that helps with starting to that process. And once your pain comes down enough, that's where you start to add in hip flexion. That's where you start to put your feet on the ground. That's where you start to add in mini squats, maybe some lunges. Um, there's, a, there's all these different kinds. There's no magic exercise. It's all about the right exercise at the right time. Um, but you can't just push through pain with this either. Um, pain is a bit of a sign for you as you progress and it's recommended right now not to go more than about a two out of 10 on kind of a zero to 10 pain scale, which I, I usually say is like a dull ache. Um, if it comes to that, like noticeable ache or starting to be on, like if you would actually define it as pain versus just like achiness, that's too much. It's got to stay a little bit low and it's got to stay low during the exercise and 24 hours after the exercise. One really nice way to know is if the exercises that you're doing are too much is you can pick uh, a movement like a single leg bridge and you can do one in the morning and you rate it on a scale of zero to 10. How painful is it to do that thing? Then you do your activities for that day. The next morning, you do the same bridge in the same position at the same time. And then you say, was it a zero out of 10, two out of 10, four out of 10, whatever it is. And you watch your trends. If your trends are getting worse, you know, your activity is too much. They're staying the same. You're in a pretty good spot, depending on how high that, that level is. If they're coming down, obviously you're heading in the right direction. Um, so I just word vomited for way too long. David, what do you want to talk about with proximal hamstring tendinopathy? No, I think you hit it great. I mean, there is a couple things that go through my head immediately. One of them was irritability, and then one is pain modulation. And you kind of covered that pretty well. And looking into the range of motion, like, okay, what are we comfortable doing? You know, and it's like if we can't hip, like we can't flex at the hip and extend our leg, well, then why would we do those exercises if it's just going to piss it off, um, to be frank? And so I think it's great, you know, working in a straight leg position. You can still work a lot of coordinated things and get a lot of great work done without doing, you know, these drop lunges or RDLs or, uh, well, actually an RDL, depending on the person. Again, right, looking at the individual. Um, But it's just using the information you have in front of you and creating a plan that works for the individual and, and feels productive. And it's like if you're able to get work done and your nervous system's okay with it, that helps tremendously with pain. Yeah. Like the brain starts to trust it again and that nervous system starts to calm down. You'd be surprised like how many times something's been like just a little guarded. And then the second that the brain feels like it's okay, it, everything yeah. lets go. And all of a sudden there's like the limitations fall off and it's, that's not the case for everybody. But sometimes someone kind of needs that permission from themselves to like go yeah. into that next area of activity. And sometimes it does take taking a step or two back initially to realize that and be like, oh, wait, I am okay. Okay. And then it's fine. <laughs> That's not the case with all things, right? I mean, yeah. when we talk about tendinopathies, usually these things have been around for a while. So 
Um, we talked about it earlier, but having these kind of more longer vision um, approaches and knowing that there might be some ebbs and flows depending on the type of work that you're putting in, mileage, speed, whatever. But yeah. I think also being comfortable with the ebbs and flows and having a psychological readiness for that can be so helpful. 100%. Yeah, because then it... I, th- I think as as you just talked about the influence of of how we approach the reality of discomfort can really influence how we experience that over time, and it's both a warning sign to us in terms of what our body can tolerate, but also a normal part of the adaptation process if you're going to go through loading. The important part about exercise, in my mind too, is if you have a proximal hamstring issue and you either limit your running, run differently, or don't run at all, you don't want to lose the overall capacity of that muscle. So you want to do as much you know, loading and strengthening as you can uh, without aggravating that tendon so that you maintain all of the strength and power that was there before. And I think that's what's missed a lot too in, in rehab programs if you do end up working with a PT is you get to a really good functional spot with pretty much everything, even like easy running, but your rehab protocol either because insurance runs out or you you can't keep going to PT from a time standpoint, we miss out on the power training. And hamstrings are very powerful muscles. Like they're made up of a lot of type 2 fibers. Um, they're quick, fast twitch. And so they fire when we go fast. And if we don't train that during a rehab process, that could re-aggravate once you really go back. Um, so that that's just another consideration for why strengthening is so important. All right, so we have another question here. Um, it's from Jeannie Runner, and they're asking, how do zero-drop shoes play a role in hamstring recruitment? Also, how would a carbon fiber-plated shoe impact hamstring recruitment or role? So, David, why don't you take this one away? We're talking about kind of two parts of the spectrum. Well, zero-drop can still I mean, have kind of a carbon-plated shoe and a rocker. Yeah, you can but, have a... Yeah, but yeah, why don't you talk about that? There's a lot there. Yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to design of the shoe. Not all zero-drop shoes are made exactly the same. I think when we look at what a zero-drop shoe used to be, it'd be similar to the company Zero, ironically. You know, these very low-to-the-ground, highly flexible shoes, kind of wide... toe box well they don't always have wide toe box but (laughs) that's kind of like the natural like oh this is what your foot's supposed to do type philosophy um with that in mind i think of it very similar as well to the very low profile bracing flats things like that where there's a lot of flexibility up front usually your leg's gonna be flying a little bit more (laughs) so if you're trying to run fast and push Um, so I would probably say on that eccentric component, when that leg's advancing, you're probably going to notice it a little bit more. And then on the landing and the pushing off, you're going to notice it a lot more in your calves. So that could be potentially more like middle muscle belly to distal hamstring because of the kind of like landing, stabilizing and having to like lift early. But what you could also say the same thing about these high stack rocker shoes as well. Um, but I would say I'd probably go more on the proximal hamstring side of things, especially since a lot of these shoes are taking load away from the calves. And so everything's shifting up, your rockers kind of shifting you and pitching you forward a little quicker, your heels raising a little bit quicker. 
Um, so I noticed myself, at least anecdotally, between the two, I probably would notice a flatter geometry more distally and a highly rockered um, high stack shoe more proximally, just on load management and what's a little bit sore following certain efforts. Yeah, I'd, I would agree with you on those. Um, there's obviously no like randomized controlled trials on this exactly. Yeah. Um, but. You know, so it's kind of anybody's it's anybody's guess, but from a biomechanical perspective, those high stacked rockered carbon plated shoes shift load away from the ankle up towards the hamstring, up towards the hip specifically, which is why I think, as you were saying, more proximally with some of those. Whereas with the zero drop shoe, if it's more of that kind of traditional flexible zero, not uh, traditional is the wrong word, but the minimalist type shoe, um, that would say, hey, we're still using a lot of our calf, which means a lot of like load sharing. So if it was going to be involved with the hamstring, it may be, you know, more mid belly, more distal, could be proximal. I feel like that's a little more like dependent on the runner than it is the shoe. Right. Whereas I think we know enough about these kind of like rocker shoes that it does shift load away from the ankle and we know that. Um, whereas this other one's kind of like, ooh. Could be for me, nothing. Could be for you, the worst thing in the world for your hamstring. Um, that's an exaggeration, but that's kind of the point, is it could be anywhere on the spectrum. Um, and I guess in my opinion, just because we don't have anything out there to show exactly what's going on there. Right. Good. And this question was actually from somebody who was recently on our podcast. Um, it was an episode that Andrea did and interviewed her on the topic of back pain and scoliosis as it uh, relates to runners. This is Dr. Jeannie Halloran. So check out that episode. Um, Really interesting stuff there that can be applied beyond just scoliosis and just understanding kind of the role of our pelvis and our spine in running. When it comes to pelvis in, uh, in running, that really actually is an influence with hamstring stuff. And we haven't touched on that yet. Right. Um, so let's use this next question and it'll flow right in perfectly with that. So Warren's ONG is asking at what state stage of running with the proximal or distal tendinopathy hurt the most? So kind of asking at what point in that cycle might it hurt the most? Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, we talked about it a little bit already, but as that yeah. leg advances forward, you're probably going to feel it a little bit more proximally. Um, as it lands, you're probably going to feel a little bit more distally just from a shock absorption closest to the ground. Like everything's kind of rotating and coming down with you as you're landing. Um, in relation to the pelvis or just, just in general there? Just in general. They didn't say pelvis, but. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> um, I, I think the the most likely spot for either the proximal or distal to be felt is that terminal swing early stance phase. Right. It just depends on for you what was the weak link and why. Um, but I do think when we think about the pelvis, when you um, if you tuck your tailbone underneath you, okay, that's going posterior. to like posterior tilt of your pelvis that shortens your hamstring. If you anteriorly tilt your pelvis, that lengthens the hamstring. So if you're a runner who has a very anterior tilt um, in your lumbar spine, that will bring your pelvis into, again, that anterior tilt, uh, lordotic curve of your spine. All these can be okay things, um, but that will put more stretch on your hamstring as your limb advances. So if you're an overstrider and you are extending your knee all the way um, and you're in this anterior tilt, that because your other leg is in terminal stance phase, which is where your hips are going to go into that anterior tilt anyway, um, 
you have to recognize that that could be leading to a lot of strain through that hamstring. So anterior tilt of your pelvis would put excess stress. And if you're overstriding with an extended knee, um, that's that's kind of a recipe for high high strain through the hamstrings. And that could be, again, a reason why if somebody has that, they might feel a little bit more proximally than they do distally, just because that will lead to increased compression at that sit bone joint. Um, the other part is when it comes to mechanics, when I'm doing running analysis with people, one of the things that we look at is landing position. I care a lot about, care a lot, depending on the person, care a lot about where the foot is landing and what it does the limb look like. I care less if they're landing on their toe or their forefoot, their heel, their rear foot, whatever. But if they land with a completely extended knee, that tells me a lot more about the demand on the hamstring than if they land with about 20 degrees of knee flexion. Very different loading profile. Shows also a different amount of like, potentially neuromuscular control because if their limb is just moving to a straight extension of their knee fully straight that means they're not slowly slowing down the limb of of their uh their tibia they're not slowing that down so that could be a part of the training is how do you learn how to advance your limb without letting your your foot just swing straight into full extension um and for folks who are having some distal stuff, I often see a fully extended knee um, as they're as they're landing, just because there's less control around the knee joint, and and that could be a factor for them as well. So this next question is from Shipwreck Trent, and they're asking, does overstretching contribute to hamstring injury? So the way I conceptualize this question was like not stretching during running, but just like stretching as a warm up or as a cool down and doing kind of like a tripod pose or whatever it is for a stretch. So do you have any thoughts on that, David? Yeah, I think inherently just looking at the question, I'll tell people mobility isn't necessarily the enemy. If you're really flexible and you have this crazy range of motion and can put your feet over your head, there's nothing wrong with that. The question is whether or not we can control it through the range of motion you want to control it through. Now, if you're a very dynamic gymnast and need that range of motion, well, you better be able to control that leg through that range or you're going to hurt yourself. And the same applies to running and things like that. Now, if we're looking at it from a force output standpoint and you're doing a lot of stretching statically before uh, before exercising intensely, there is research out there that does show that that does decrease your force output when you are trying to do something with a high amount of load on the other end of it. And so that's why they usually don't recommend, you know, these long static stretching sessions before a heavy weight lifting or a speed workout or things like that. And then it's like almost the opposite with dynamic stretching, you know, getting a warm up in, getting the pliability of the muscle, the tendon, get it used to kind of extending out a little bit and get it primed at both in the neuromuscular stand, well, yeah, nervous system and muscular, neuromuscular, um, from that neuromuscular standpoint so that it knows that it's about to do something and it's ready to go do it. Um, so stretching is so wide of a field, but if I'm hearing, if I'm like reading it, at least the way I feel like I'm interpreting this, I, it sounds static based on the question. And if it's before a, a high intensity effort, then it probably would be detrimental from a force output standpoint. But if you're doing it just throughout the day for your own wellness, even afterwards, I haven't really seen anything detrimental there. And if you feel good and it helps get some blood flow to the area and you have nice mobility, then that's great. Yeah. When they look at hamstring injuries, it's not like stretching is a risk factor for hamstring injury, but um, 
that I think that if the question is about a healthy person just doing a lot of stretching, doing yoga, doing things for mobility, is that going to predispose you to a hand? Does that contribute to injury? Not necessarily, I think is what you were just saying. And I would agree with that. Um, where I think it flips a little bit is if you're somebody with a more acute hamstring strain of some kind and then you stretch, um, that that would contribute to preventing healing. And the reason that this is important is because when you strain a muscle, hip flexors are a great example, calves are an awesome example, hamstrings are another amazing example. When you strain them, they feel tight. Like that's what they'll feel like. So it'll be like the natural thing that you want to do is a stretch – that stretching can prolong the healing process. So for an acute hamstring strain, they usually we recommend not stretching for at least three weeks, if not four to six, depending depending on how severe your you know your injury is. You want to avoid that stretching because you think about it, if you had a rope and you were to fray that rope, it wouldn't get stronger by pulling on it more. You would have to give it time to, you know, re-adhere to itself and then you can stretch it to get the length if you have a length deficit. So in that sense, yes, overstretching can contribute to hamstring issues, but that's only if you've had one in the first place that you're trying to rehabilitate. Um, otherwise, I think it's, as you said, timing of your stretching is maybe important and it may not contribute necessarily, but it's also you know, maybe not the most needed thing if you're trying to like pair out what what do I need to do to stay healthy running? Hamstring stretching regularly probably doesn't top the list. And we're talking mainly here when we say acute strain, most likely sprinting it pulled up. Yes. Might have a partial micro tear in there. Like you need to let that thing mend and you don't want to be yanking on it a bunch. Yeah. Not necessarily like I've been feeling this six months. Yes. And things are pulling on a little bit. And yeah. Yes, exactly. I think the other group I would add in there are like the group where I just ran my first 5K in forever and my hamstrings feel so tight now. That's not a really a time to stretch either. You've probably have a grade one. This is what happens when you do a hard effort, <laughs> you you tear muscles. That's what you do. You break them down. And that's why recovery is so important because you get weaker during a workout and then stronger during the rest. So if you went and raced something and you're noticing your hamstrings feel quote unquote tight, you probably don't want to stretch them for that week. Let them, let them feel tight and loosen them up by doing, as you said, dynamic warmups, go walk, go do some like very light movement related skips, exercise, body weight stuff, skip, skips. Yeah. Skip. You know, high knees. But Get it like, moving. <laughs> do something. You know? Do some bridges, Heel whatever it is. Kicks, like or butt kicks. I mean, like yeah, yeah. <laughs> Great. I know Casper, cool. the friendly ghost, is feeling it a little bit right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Our audio. As for those who don't know, Casper, our audio engineer. He just had a 5K. I feel like I'm using the example because it's him. Um, <laughs> yeah. But he, he just, he just bridges, raced actually. his first 5K. And he just did bridges now. He put it in the chat. It's amazing. <laughs> um, he just ran a 5K, did a great job, um, did better than what his goal time was, and he's feeling it today. So we're actually just talking to him this whole time. All right, let's move on. Um, we've we've hit a lot of these other questions because um, Natty Coleman was talking about mechanical differences between the upper and, and lower hamstring tendinopathy. We talked about that. Um, we talked about where this proximal hamstring tendinopathy tends to be up in the, the glutes. This is Eric Korup, and they were asking, is this kind of deep glute bump pain insertional hamstring tendinopathy? They sometimes barely notice it. Maybe, <laughs> because it could be so many things. It could be that proximal hamstring issue. It could be something with 
you know, the low back referring there. It could be one of the gluteal, deep gluteal muscles. There's a lot of anatomy, um, but that is where the pain comes in. Um, so I think the the last big question that I want to ask you, David, and we've we've gotten this from a few people, it's for those who haven't had hamstring issues and want to maintain healthy hamstrings. Um, what recommendations do you have for for that group where they're like, I haven't had an issue before. Are there things I should do? I I always fret to use the word prevent these injuries, but what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, when we take a look at late stage rehab for hamstring strains, it's a lot of that stuff. Yes. Keep your strength good. Keep your pliability good. I mean, whether it's plyometrics, dynamic stretching. I mean, you'll never see me before a track workout not doing any kind of drills. Like, I will always be doing some skips. I'll, like, I mean, it might be a little bit different on the day depending on what I'm feeling internally, but I will always be doing something and making sure that things are mobile. You know, I. I've tried to be good about the strength training and other side of things as well. Just making sure that your body is a good machine that you can use. And if you keep it, you know, if you take care of it, it should take care of you. And that's not to say that people doing all the right things don't get hurt. It does happen. I'm sorry for the situation. It's happened to myself, you know, and you sometimes there's things outside of your control there and you just have to take things in your hands and do the best you can and get back out there. But if you're doing things well and things are going well, keep try to keep them going well. <laughs> like yes. It's, I wouldn't necessarily unless you're doing absolutely nothing and just thinking about it, I probably wouldn't change too much. And even then, if you're not doing anything and you want to start doing something, ease into it because if you go and you overload your body in a different way on top of other things you're already doing, that's also asking for an injury. Yeah. So just don't overextend yourself and gradually increase the load of whatever it is you're trying to do, whether it's get faster or get stronger or just, you know, do things around the house. Yep. I totally agree. I think that one of the best things we can do for just the global idea of trying to stay healthy when we run is to pre-plan. So if you are not a 5K runner or a one miler or whatever, and you want to go and do something faster, but you've just been running casually and recreationally and maybe some long distance stuff prepare your body for that before you start that training cycle so like if you want to train for if you know like oh this summer i think i want to do a 5k and i really really want to run it hard that that's winter and spring you should be doing that late stage rehab so you should do heavy strengthening you should load those tendons a lot through eccentrics or heavy concentrics either one and then be hitting plyometric stuff so that you're getting that power and fast um, response to it because our muscles and tendons don't adapt to loads we don't give them to give to them so if we don't train plyometrics in that high speed velocity stuff it won't really be ready for it when the time comes so take your time when you're not in a heavy training cycle and do exercises that are specific to the demands that running will put on it later because running doesn't really get us stronger we have to get stronger to like do the running that we want to do so that'd be my biggest recommendation is pre-plan and get a plan in place to do it i think when it comes to like gait retraining i think you'd have to have something pretty um pronounced on on kind of your running analysis so Um, I, even though I have a 3d system like in our clinic and I use it all the time, um, I'm not changing somebody's running for something minor. Um, you know, cause even the evidence on injury prevention through gait retraining, um, 
it's getting there. There is some stuff there now, uh, which is nice, but it would be if you were the person who has a lot of extension through your knee and you're really landing overstriding, that would just be part of global injury prevention, not specifically hamstrings. So I think that there is a space for assessing your running and kind of looking at it, but you'd have to have somebody who knows what they're talking about and not just make changes for the heck of it. All right, final question of the night. David, this is for you. Is it hammy, H-A-M-M-I-E, or hammy, H-A-M-M-Y? Interesting. I wonder who sent that one. Um, that's a Spoiler great question. Alert. It was Doxabrun David. <laughs> it was the first question we got. <laughs> you know, I'm from the IE, the Inland Empire. I got to go with hammy, I-E. What? No. <laughs> No, this is an H-A-M-M-Y situation. <laughs> or, I mean, I think of it similar, actually, to, like, the Tammy Tammy or the Sammy Sammy. Like, which one's right? They're both right. Uh, I think you're wrong in this scenario. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's our new subjective. Oh, is it man. hammy with an I-E or hammy with a Y? But then so, whammy is only with the Y. I've never seen whammy with an I-E. No whammies. But then Have if you, you plural it, it's IES, right? On all those. Yeah, it's true. Have you seen uh, that game show? What's it called? No Whammies, No Whammies, No Whammies, that one? Why would I watch a show called No Whammies, No Whammies, No Whammies? No, 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 no. It's called something else. Oh. Uh, <laughs> gosh, what's it called? It's a, But it's a game show, and that's like when they hit the spinner, they're like, No Whammies. Anyway, I can't think of it. Also, somebody help us out and tell us what that game show is. Anyway, thank you all for contributing questions about the hamstring. We had a fun time talking about this. And again, we do have some resources of specific rehab exercises on our Instagram. You'll kind of have to dig a little bit. Um, they are easy to find this. I feel like a weird, weird plugging this. So, but on my, on my, um, the running lab that I kind of lead, it's called Pioneer's Running Lab. Um, we'll link these in the pod as well, or in the, in the description. Um, but you know, on Pioneer's Running Lab, our Instagram, if you hit the exercises tab or highlight reels or whatever, it'll bring up some reels of, of these exercises. And yes, Casper, our audio engineer in the clutch, it's called Press Your Luck. That's the game show. Woo! Anyway, uh, thank you all for joining us tonight. We just went off the rails for the last three minutes, so sorry for wasting your time and look forward to talking next time. Have a great night, everybody. Thank you.